Hey everybody, I'm Jason, your host of Let Freedom Reign, an equine industry leading podcast that talks to folks from all different walks of life who share their testimony of adversities and perseverance and how the horse has helped them through their journey. Stay tuned. We're going to have a great time. Come along for the ride. Now, for those of you who regularly listen to the show, you know it is very important to us to raise the bar of the common level of horsemanship. In doing so, we like to educate and expose our listeners to some of the greatest horsemen in the world and amazing educational opportunities. Now, Jonathan Field was featured in episode 17 of the 2018 season. Jonathan has two amazing clinics coming up in March in California. The first clinic, Course 1, will be March 9th through 11th, followed by Course 3, March 16th through the 18th. Now, Jonathan limits his clinics to only a handful of riders, so there's a great chance these courses will fill up quick. If you cannot get into the clinic, however, Jonathan offers a more than reasonable price of $25 a day for spectators and is doing a deal of $60 if you pay for all three days. Now, both clinics will be hosted at Marsh Creek Stables, located in Brentwood, California, at 24670 Marsh Creek Road. I can speak from firsthand experience in telling you that this is an incredible facility. There's both indoor and outdoor riding arenas that will be included in the clinic. Feel free to bring a chair, pad, or blanket for comfort while watching the clinic. Additionally, there will be coffee and food on site available for purchase. Now, Marsh Creek Stables is located only a few minutes from town, which gives you access to additional dining and hotels. All clinic days will start at about 8 a.m. and finish around 5 p.m. Now remember, we're all on horse time, so they will dictate when it's time to turn it in for the night. For additional information on this amazing opportunity, I encourage you to visit jonathanfieldhorsemanship.net or email info at jonathanfield.net. I encourage you all to come out and enjoy this amazing opportunity to learn from Jonathan Field. We look forward to seeing you all there, and we're going to have a great time. Now this week on the show, we have an incredible guest coming to us from South Dakota. Now Jen Zeller is a woman of many talents. She's a photographer, rancher, barrel racer, horsewoman, and writer who has written for many publications throughout the Western industry. Now, throughout this episode, she shares some extremely personal details and some horrible relationships she's been in in her life. For any of you listeners who have been exposed to domestic violence or know individuals who have been in horrible relationships, Jen offers some incredible insight in the resilience, strength, and persistence it takes to overcome such atrocities. We visit the parallels of horsemanship and helping the human along the way. But in closing, Jen might have given one of the strongest testimonies by any guest on this show to date. Now, Jen is involved in many endeavors, such as the DX Ranch, Project Help, and the South Dakota Cowgirl. Please take the time to visit and go support her endeavors via social media, websites, and the various projects in the works. Now, should you find the content of this episode valuable, please share it with a friend. Additionally, your five-star ratings and reviews on the podcast platform of your choice would mean the world to us. You can find us on both Facebook and Instagram under Let Freedom Reign Podcast. I hate to keep you all waiting any longer. Here is Jen Zeller. Good morning, Jen. How are you? I'm great, Jason. How are you? Doing very well. Um, before we get into everything, I just want to thank you for making time for everybody here at Let Freedom Reign. We definitely enjoy our experiences with our guests, and we're very grateful for everybody, given their busy schedules, to make a little time for us to share their story and, and develop our listeners. Yeah, you bet. I think your podcast is awesome. Thank you very much. We definitely appreciate the support. Now, being that you are a blogger and a horsewoman and a rancher and a photographer and all the other titles that you carry, <laughs> dare, I, dare I ask the question, what's new for you? 
Uh, well, actually, I'm currently working on a project um, for Art of the Cowgirl, and that's going to be in Arizona, um, February 8th through the 10th in Phoenix at the Corona Ranch. Um, and Art of the Cowgirl is the brainchild of Tammy Pate. Your listeners may know who she is. Some of them may not, but I bet your listeners know who her husband is, Kurt Pate. He used to do some um, work in some clinics for the American Quarter Horse Association, and he currently works for um, Beef Quality Assurance and goes around the world uh, teaching low-stress cattle handling. And the Pates have been family friends of ours for a while, and Tammy needed some help, so she called me in December and said, hey, do you want to do this? And I said, of course. So that's what I'm doing right now. I'm putting together an art auction and a photography showcase. Basically, Art of the Cowgirl is um, a way to honor women who have perfected their trades of silversmithing or rawhide braiding, saddle making, colt starting, um, and the contributions that women make to the Western arts. So it's it's going to be a really killer event, and I'm super excited to be part of that. And it's nice because it's freaking cold here in South Dakota right now. So it's given me an excuse to stay inside. <laughs> so you go to Arizona for a few days and thaw out. How about that? Yeah, exactly. Now, last week I had a pretty interesting guest, Yahel Applebaum. She's a horsewoman out of Israel, actually. And we talked about that, how I can't say unpopular, maybe uneducated people are to horsemanship and all that sort. And she expressed her concern on being a, a cowgirl and really, you know, a working cowgirl. And we had, we had the conversation about how popular it was in Israel, and she actually said that she is probably the only female who carries on a cowgirl tradition in that country, which I think is pretty influential. And and when it comes down to it, and you obviously know working on a ranch and living on a ranch, I mean, it's all hands on deck. And yes, there's the whole cowboy mystique in the history of it, but the wives and the sisters and, and all the females play just as important role in the daily operations of a ranch as, as anybody else associated yeah, for sure. If it were left up to um, my other half, Zach, when we had, you know, like fall work and people come over, he would just put on a pot of chili or feed us sandwiches. Fortunately for the crew that comes over, it, his daughter and I are more than willing to put on a nice spread so we can feed them <laughs> for their work. <laughs> yeah, a little more variety, right? But that's, you know, women all over in ranch country, that's what they do. They are up before everybody else in the household as a general rule during branding season and fall works. And they're, they've got food prep started two or three days before, a lot of times before the branding starts and they're up and they get it ready and they go work just as hard as the boys do during branding. And they might cut out early to get everything prepped and ready. And the crew comes and they feed them. And then the, you know, the women are still cleaning up. When everybody else is gone, so. Oh, it's true. I ride out in a facility in Texas a lot, and there's a cook that comes out, and we're out there for about a week at a time. And yeah, oh yeah, she's up two or three hours before anybody else starting starting breakfast, and she goes down probably two or three hours after everybody else getting ready for the next day. And she does not stop in between. Um, I think we get more of a rest in the in the time that we enjoy her meals than she does throughout her entire workday. Mm -hmm. So it's yeah. a very integral role in in the process. We're really fortunate, and I'm about half spoiled that Zach's sister likes to cook, and so she cooks for our branding. And our branding is a big social event. Um, we usually have about 100 people that come to our branding. It's the last branding in in our part of the country. We brand really late over Father's Day weekend, and um, she cooks for about 100 people. So 
Um, fortunately for us, we don't have to do anything but drink beer, socialize, and brand a few calves. <laughs> I say toss a few calves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome, awesome. So let's go back to Art of the Cowgirl a little bit. Can you explain kind of the history of the event and where it came from? I know you exp- explained what the event entails, but I think it's kind of a, a cool testament to the cowgirl. Well, this is the first year that Tammy's done this, and she just made the announcement maybe six months ago. I'm not exactly sure on the dates of when it when she started to kind of put the event together. But um, as I understand it, and I could be wrong on this, as I understand it, uh, Tammy learned to make boots, and she was very grateful for the opportunity that someone provided her to study and learn the craft of boot making. So what she's done is put together a fellowship program that will allow other women that want to go into the boot making trade or the saddle making trade. She's raising funds through the art auction and through some other avenues to be able to allow these cowgirls that want to learn to braid or make a saddle to go study with a master in that field, which is incredible. Absolutely. I mean, what a great uh, ranch women are really good at supporting each other. That's a great thing about developing the community, right? Is it a lot of those skills are somewhat of a dying art and, oh, yeah. and being that there's everything on social media and YouTube and the internet, it's kind of hard to find those true craftsmen, right? Because yeah. so many things, so many people think they're experts or claim to be experts. So it's nice that you can have these one-on-one interactions or more intimate interactions with more than credible resources and, and kind of learn and internship and carry on these, these dying traditions. Yeah, it's, it's a, it was a brilliant idea. So what is new with the South Dakota cowgirl? Well, let's see. 2019 is kind of starting off as the, with a bang for me as a photographer. I'm putting on my first um, women's photography retreat weekend here at the ranch in April, and that's booked full already. I'm already booking for a second weekend in August. Oh, that's incredible. I got the cover of a magazine that I've been lusting after for quite some time, and that comes out in February. I can't tell you what it is. I can't, <laughs> we'll keep I it can't top share the for details. Now. It's top secret. <laughs> um, actually, it might be out before this podcast publishes. We'll see. I would I say know. that's your story to tell. We're not here to poker prod yeah. and be the first one to turn a story, <laughs> no. right? <laughs> no, no, no. Um, so that's exciting. So that was, that was um, pretty great, and I, it's kind of cool that I was – able to book my first photography workshop because I don't feel like I am, I don't feel qualified to teach people photography. Um, I, I kind of grew up just art kind of flowed out of me when I was a kid. I drew everything. I would look at a picture and I would draw it or I would just imagine something, a scene and just make it happen. And I think I was six and I entered this terrible drawing <laughs> of a horse into the county fair and it was just a pencil drawing, and it won first place over all these beautiful drawings. But the judge, I guess, just felt like this little girl needed encouragement or what have you. And so um, I kind of stuck with my art all through junior high. And then in high school, I took an AP art class. So I put together a portfolio and had it photographed and sent it off to the board and got college credit for my art and had a bunch of art schools that kind of wanted to that kind of wanted to recruit me and I wanted a rodeo in college. I didn't want to go to art school and I didn't want to be a starving artist when I got out of college. So I went another route and kind of put my pencils on hold 
if you will, while I was in college and rodeoing and wouldn't you know that later in life, I picked up a camera and became a starving artist. I was going to say, <laughs> you did all, all that you could do to avoid being a starving artist and here you are a starving artist. Yes, exactly. No, I would say uh, you've been more than successful in, in all of your content endeavors and it's very exciting to watch and a lot of it's educational and as we get in to the latter part of the program, obviously we'll give you the opportunity to kind of sell some of that stuff because I've spent the latter part of last week reading a lot of your material and going over a lot of your photos and your work and it's just incredible stuff, right? It's real world stuff. It's very applicable and you do it in a manner in which it's digestible by the, the, the consumer. It's not so clinical or professional or officious that, that it turns people off. It's very well read. Thank you. And I, I kind of feel like, I feel like that's one of the blessings that I have been granted living on a ranch and being able to see the beauty, you know, of a frozen freaking tundra that we're in at the moment. Um, and being able to maybe advocate for this way of life uh, and mean, meaning ranch life, yeah, meaning yeah. Um, rural life, meaning agriculture. I wouldn't say that I'm like the very the world's best um, quote unquote ag advocate. Uh, there's a lot of women that do a much better job of that than I do. In fact, one of my good friends was like the advocate of the year this year, named by the NCBA, which is awesome for her. But you know, and her platform is beef and teaching. Mine is is really more. I think. Being able to find yourself and lift yourself up in any sort of situation, and I, I can, I feel like I use the ranch to do that in a way that is is pretty and that is attractive and that gets people talking and asking questions. And I think your philosophy very much parallels the approach of this podcast. Is that oftentimes the human being is far more resilient than we give ourselves credit, right? Oh yeah, and. and for me, uh, I use horses as that vehicle to try to show people their resilience and and teach people that, hey, life is not as bad as we often make it out to be. And, and the human being can go through some horrible atrocities and some incredible trauma. And there's always kind of a way out. Now, it's going to take a lot of soul searching and work oftentimes to find that. But the horse kind of help, helps carry that in a human. And it's just an incredible journey. And I think with a lot of your artwork, in my opinion... I mean, the stories that are told in the photos and and for individuals that have experienced the ranch life, I think they get a little bit more out of it because you do understand the beauties or sitting there watching the horses graze at sundown or like you talked about, right, the the cold snap of the morning and, and you're out walking a frozen lake or checking cattle or doing everything else that needs to be done in a daily life that a lot of people in the general public don't see. Yeah, for sure. It's and, absolutely you know, incredible. We use the horses here too with our nonprofit and they're such great teachers. They can, they are so honest. <laughs> they don't, they don't know how to be dishonest and, and, you know, humans are really good at lying to themselves. Horses don't do that. They can't. No. You know, they no. know what's in the moment and that's all they know. And they know whether they want to be with us or whether they don't. And they sure as heck don't want to be with us when we are in a crabby, rotten mood. Yeah. You know, and and the thing is, the horse is always aware of his surroundings, and he's always aware of our attitude long before we are. You know, in in my journey, I tell people kind of grace and forgiveness are the lessons that the horse has given me, right, or the gifts the horse has given me. 
but awareness is probably the greatest gift that's been taught to me by the horse. I mean, every single day I go out, it's a a whole new threshold, a whole new layer is peeled back or developed or however you want to say it in my awareness of of everything, right? My emotional state, my environment, my my physical proximity to the horse and, and, and all sorts of things. So there's there's so many avenues that you can go with horsemanship. There's so many people that can be helped. There's so many people that can benefit from this stuff. It's just incredible to talk to horse people from all over the world and get their perspective on it. Because like you said earlier, not being the biggest advocate, in my opinion, that doesn't matter because you play your role in the race, right? And it's a team effort and it's a consolidated effort. And it doesn't matter if it's your first day working advocacy for ranch life or, or you're standing up there receiving that award as being advocate of the year, right? Everybody's got their job and every job is just important as the next. And God's given us different vehicles in which we can apply those skills and and make those impacts. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Good stuff. So let's get into a little bit of your history. I know we kind of touched on it as far as the starving artist deal. Grew up in Oklahoma, spent some time in Texas. Now we're in South Dakota. You have traveled one heck of a journey to get there. Um, (laughs) If you don't mind kind of sharing your story with people and we'll get into kind of the growth and development portion of it and how the horses helped you along the way and then get into some of your material later on. Um, Sure, yeah. So I was born in Oklahoma. I was this little horse crazy kid and we kind of lived outside the city limits and had a few acres and I just didn't understand why I couldn't have a horse. But, you know, my parents were like, we don't have enough land. And, you know, when you're a little kid, three acres looks like a lot. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> you're, you know, just your perspective changes as you get older. But in 1989, I was 11, and my dad's company that he worked for moved him to Texas. And my parents said, if we can find a place with land, you can have a horse. And I was just, I thought that was the greatest thing. Praying for land. <laughs> I'll never forget the day that my mom called me at school, and she's like, just so you know we got this house. And I'm like, yes, yay. So summer I turned 11. Um, my parents got me two horses. They bought a colt from a neighbor up the road. Then they got me this five-year-old, really gentle little grade gelding off of the dude ranch string from a local dude ranch. It just so happened that another neighbor, a couple blocks down the road, if you will, there weren't blocks particularly, but country blocks. Was about seven houses down the road where everybody had about five acres and he was a professional horse trainer and they showed Arabians and he had a barn that needed clean. So my parents marched down there one day and introduced themselves and said, can she work for her riding lessons? And he said, absolutely. And, you know, all these years later, that was 89. This is 2019. His wife and my mother are still best friends. Oh, that's great. So I went down every morning. I got up at like six, six thirty in the summer, either rode my bike, rode my horse or walked down cleaned his stud stalls, exercised his horses and got riding lessons twice a week. And so that's kind of where I, that's kind of where I learned to ride. And of course my dad said, you're going to get tired of, my dad grew up on a farm. And so he knew what kind of work I was getting myself into. He said, you know, I'm going to give you, you get, I'm giving you six weeks and you're going to be tired of feeding these suckers twice a day. And lo and behold, by the time I was a junior in high school, we were going to 75 rodeos a year. <laughs> I was going to say, you've kind of exceeded those expectations a little bit. <laughs> On a little bit yeah, of a streak, I, per se, huh? Yeah. So kind of just got bit with the bug and and gave a few riding lessons to myself when I got to later in my high school career and got a scholarship to college to rodeo. Went out to Eastern New Mexico University for a couple of years. 
um, rodeoed out there. The coach that recruited me retired. So I moved back to Texas, sat out a year, and then went to the college that I'd really wanted to go to since the beginning anyway, but they didn't give scholarships to um, freshmen and sophomores. Mm -hmm. So I went back and just decided I was going to go there anyway and finished rodeoing and finished going to college at Tarleton State University in Stephenville, Texas. While I was in college, I was home for the summer or something and met a guy that was about nine years my senior. Um, I was 20, I think, at the time. Fell in love with him and got married, and the nightmare started, <laughs> um, for lack of a better way to put it. I dated him for a couple of years, and very charismatic man. Everybody loved him. One of those people that could walk into a room, and in five minutes, everyone was eating out of his hand. Got married shortly thereafter. I was in counseling because I thought I was freaking going crazy. You know, he was mentally and emotionally abusive. And, you know, you tell people that and they think, yeah, yeah, whatever, because we all know somebody that's passive aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, this go this went beyond passive aggressive. This was, you're not good enough. You're fat. Your cooking tastes like shit. You know, there was... N- no building me up, no partnership. He made the money. He did this. He did that. And we were a little over a year and a half maybe into our marriage. And he had a friend in South Dakota. He wanted to come up and go hunting. And uh, it's right, Thanksgiving, so we're getting ready to have finals and kind of wrap up. And he was supposed to drop a check off with the electric company. And, you know, it's not cold in Texas by any stretch. Of course, we think it was cold. But... Anyway, the lights get shut off, and he didn't pay the bill, and don't have heat. You know, I'm trying to function in this situation. He doesn't understand why this is a big deal. You're leaving, one, you're leaving your wife without electricity, but two, it's finals, and you're supposed to be college-educated and done all these things in your life, and so... I finally went and did a little research at the Tarrant County Courthouse in Fort Worth and found out that everything he told me about his past was a lie. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. So he didn't graduate high school. He didn't go to Texas Tech. He didn't run track on the Olympic team, like none of this. And, I, you know, I called his grandmother and just confronted her. And she's like, oh, no, you know, he's lied about all of that to you, sweetie. So I'm assuming it's all done in an effort to win you over. Oh, of course. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, and he had an ex-wife and two kids and I loved his kids and, you know, they were really young. They were like, I think his daughter was ooh, eight or nine months old when I met her. I mean, he'd just gotten divorced. She might've been a year old when I, when I met him, you know, and, and all the, it just was one lie led to another lie led to another. He was living in a house that his dad owned and had no furniture. And he's like, well, you know, the divorce just, he just took me for everything. And, you know, there was a, there was a very plausible explanation. And of course, when you're in love, you don't see the red flags that you would otherwise. Yeah, you take it as face value and, and confide right, in because, them, trust in them. Right. And, and I think as humans, for the most part, we try to take people at face value. I mean, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I was a very, I was a very good benefit of the doubt giver at the time. I may not be quite such a good benefit of the doubt giver. <laughs> now you got earn a little bit. The, the good news is I can smell a man like this from a mile oh, away. Oh, here so, we go. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, I, long story short, 
I ended up, we ended up buying a horse together. Well, we had several horses together, but we bought a horse that needed some additional training. So we hired a guy that came pretty highly recommended. And I went and rode with him one day after the horse had been there for about 30 days and and had a really good time, learned some things and gave him a lot of shit because his horses look terrible. You know, it's two dudes training horses. They're not grooming them. They're not they're brushing them where the saddle goes and, you know, they're getting Jump the job done. And go for it, yeah. <laughs> it's an unregulated industry. That's what you get, right? Yeah, so I I gave him a, a, bunch, a bunch of grief about that. And anyway, about a week later, he calls me and he said, so I want to make you a deal. And I said, well, okay. And he's like, have you ever thought about training horses? And I'm like, well, no. And he's like, well, you got really good timing and you got really good feel and your hands are nice and thoughtful and I'll make you a deal. You come help me ride some of these colts. And keep them clean and help me clean stalls, and I'll teach you what I know. And I was like, man, this is amazing. Because that's a decent that's opportunity. Some, that's something I'd always wanted to do, and I just kind of like the photography thing. You know, I didn't feel like I was qualified to be to be training a horse. And, you know, little did I know at the time that every time you touch your horse, you teach him something good, bad, or indifferent. Yeah. And so so we're all horse trainers to some degree if you handle the horse. Oh, but, Absolutely. So he offered me this opportunity and it was it was good for me because he mentored me not only in the horses but also through this tumultuous terrible relationship that I was in with this extra controlling man. I mean this man controlled what I put on the grocery list and what I bought. You know, we could be flat broke and have zero dollars in our checking account and he'd give spend twenty five hundred dollars on a suit at Brooks Brooks Brothers and go out on the weekends with his friends or force us to go out on the weekends when we had no money and be putting, you know, whatever on a credit card because we had to look like Yeah, he's living the lie. Like our shit was together. Yeah. You know, and the fact of the matter was our shit was not together. I'm freaking miserable. I hate myself. I hate him. I feel trapped. I can't go anywhere. Really riding the horses was the only was the only freedom I had. And it hadn't occurred to me at the time and I don't know why. But I was having a conversation with Mark one day at the barn. We were riding some horses. And I said, well, you know, Jeff says I can't do that. He's not going to let me. And he said, you know what? A grown man does not get to tell another grown adult what they can and cannot do. Jen. (laughs) And that had, you know, that was like a foreign concept to me. Like that thought had never crossed my mind that, wait a minute, (laughs) I do have a choice in this. Yeah. Yeah. I have a say. And so... Kind of when I started to realize that I had a yes or no or a, you know, F you, I'm not going to go along with this. We're not going to do this. That's when the physical violence started with him. It, it wasn't that he was beating me up per se so much as it was a because I didn't function in his parameters with the emotional abuse at that point in time, then it was screaming, throwing things at me, you know, punching walls, holding me against the wall with a knife in your hand. Um, <laughs> rape, you name saying, it. That's, like, uh, that's violence. Yeah, it was. But that's I was violence. We're not going to minimize that one single bit. I was too scared to call the cops because I didn't think the cops would believe me. He had me convinced they weren't going to, you know. I think it's absolutely incredible when you go through some of this domestic violence spectrum, right? Like the cycle of violence is real, right? It starts out with very, very minimal control. Oh, yeah. And once that minimal level of control is lost, they step the game up, right? Yeah. And 
trauma bonding is real. Stockholm syndrome is real, right? Oh, for sure. People always ask these questions with domestic violence. Well, just leave, right? That ain't that tough. Just leave. No, No. it's not that easy, right? And and with the whole psychological abuse thing, well, you know, be mentally tougher than that, right? Ignore what he says. Don't give it so much credit. Like, no, it's not that black and white. This is it's it's I think it's an interesting dynamic because it starts out with small, small manipulations, small changes, mm-hmm. right? And it's you think about it as is a is a from a horsemanship perspective, right? They're layering small victories, right, in the abuser's mind, small victories on top of small victories on top of small victories, and in weeks, months, years, time, I mean, they have completely destroyed a human being. Completely destroyed yeah. a human being. And the feelings of entrapment and the feelings of fear and believing those lies become a yep. reality for for the individual being abused. It's it's a crazy, crazy dynamic that this world is and in relationship to domestic violence. I very much feel for you when you when you when you describe these these feelings. Yeah, I mean the the fear is real. Yeah. You know, and it's 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 very much like a horse that's been mistreated. Like they, you have to rebuild them from the ground up. Yeah. You know, and, and so, you know, we've got the physical abuse starting at this point. And, um, I am at this point also completely clinically depressed. Like I failed an entire semester of college. Couldn't even bring myself to go to class most of the time. And if I did go to class. You're so preoccupied mentally that you can't, you're not there. Yeah, the typical cheery me couldn't look anyone in the eye. You know, at this point, I'm seeing the college therapist. She's got me on antidepressants, which, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know that they, at the time, they may have helped a little bit. They at least got me to get out of the house and back to rodeo practice. I don't know if I failed an entire semester, but I had to retake a few classes. You know, they got me kind of back to rodeo practice. They kind of got me, they got me out of the house to a point where, I started running again, and the running was actually what got pulled me out of the depression. Interesting. That, that was going to be my question. What was your turning point? Because unfortunately, a lot of women never have a turning point, right? And it leads to homicide and all these other issues. I can remember on the days that I didn't have practice or on the days that I didn't have class, I would go to the city park and run. And the city park had this huge hill. And so I would warm up on the flat, and I would I'd get that in and then I would co- go conquer the hill. And I remember every day I'd run that hill and I would, and it, you know, sometimes I couldn't make it up and I couldn't make it up and then I'd make it a little further and make it a little further. And I, that hill, it, I don't know if it was, I think it was, must've been a subconscious thing. Like conquering this hill is going to make me better. You I was know what say, I mean? Do you, do you think, do you think that hill kind of represented taking control back? Yeah, that I think something it did. You could control? I think it did, but I don't think I consciously recognized Knew that's it, what it was. Yeah. at the time, yeah. you know. I was going to say, oftentimes with, with recovery in any of these processes, trauma processes, right? We do have successes. We don't know what they are. And it's not until you're a few years down the road reflecting on the situation that you kind of realize where you were at different right. points in your development. So, Well, and, and you know, I don't want to say that that, I mean, that was a turning point, yes, but the recovery from that relationship took me over a decade. So let's don't get ahead of ourselves necessarily. That was the turning point in that I got off the medication. I didn't feel like I needed it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I was very fortunate that I had a very good group of girlfriends that they knew something wasn't right. 
you know, and I could talk to them, but I was pretty much isolated from my family. I was isolated from a lot because that's what they do. These absolutely, absolutely. They are they are masters at isolating people from. They are masters at isolating people from anyone that might tell them the truth, you know, or or bring to light something that that is off, if you will. And so the girls that were friends with me, some of them had known me since high school, so they knew I wasn't right. You know what I mean? Because they'd Absolutely. seen me. They'd seen you before and the They'd seen me yeah. at my best, and now they're seeing me at my worst. And I will be forever grateful to those girls that loaned me money for horse feed or gave me hay when I didn't have any and there was no money to buy any. And I'm super thankful for parents that while they didn't know what was going on and, you know, I I grew up in a good Christian home where divorce wasn't an option. Um, They were, you know, they had the financial means to make the pickup payment and to keep the lights on when I didn't have any and there was no money and Jeff wasn't going to do it. You know what I mean? And they've never asked for, they've never asked for anything back and they knew something was off but they didn't know what they're exactly probably, it they're was, probably yeah. actually going to learn stuff listening to this podcast that i've never told sorry, them. mom and dad yeah sorry mom and dad um that i mean they may have had an idea but um i'm sure i'm sure in their heart they knew what was going on or had an inkling that they or suspicion so i'm running last i finally get to graduate um it takes me longer than it would have i think i i graduated high school in 96 I didn't graduate college till 2002. Granted, I had some, you know, I trained schools and did some things like that. But so my sister um, graduated um, college the same time I did. I didn't care to walk across the stage. I just wanted to be out. Yeah, give me the just... paper, I'm going to hit it. <laughs> exactly. That was me. So I, um, I went to her graduation and then my parents, there was a big graduation party. My husband at the time didn't come. Shocker. Yeah, right. I, exactly. So I decided, I'm like, you know what? I am going to take my horses. I'm going to move back to my parents' house because they're a lot closer to job hunting mm-hmm. um, than where I where we were living in Stephenville at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, Christmas break, I think 12th or 13th of December, something like that's when we graduated. And and um, my brother's home from, from college as well at this time. And I'm just miserable. And he says to me one day, he's like, why don't you just go move out? Let's go pack your shit right now and get this done. Yeah. Jeff's not home. Hit it. Let's just do it. And it was at both the most horrifying and freeing. I was going to say a liberating feeling you've ever had. That I'd ever had. I mean, and I, it's so strange to think that you can have those feelings at the same time. I was horrified and terrified and immediately sick. But at the same time, I thought, oh my gosh, this is my chance. I was going to say, there's probably that feeling of, am I really doing this right now? Yes. Am I really doing this right now? So we quick cleaned out the horse trailer. Uh, my dad had it hooked up. My brother and my dad and my sister and me drove the two hours down to our place in Stephenville and raided the house and took everything that we could take and fit at that point in time. And these people have a sixth sense. So, of course... As soon as we make the decision, Jeff starts calling. We yeah. ignore him. He calls everyone. He cycles through everybody's phone a couple times. My mom's kind of terrified. She's at home by herself. She's got the doors locked, you know, not answering the phone. And and uh, he he finally we we get back 
late that evening, like nine o'clock or something. And, and he calls and, and my dad's like, are you going to take it now? We're all together. You know, you don't have to talk to him if you don't want to. I'm like, I don't know. And he's like, well, why don't maybe if you want to talk to him, make a list of these things that have to get fixed. Cause of course they're still maybe thinking there's some hope for this. Yeah. Not, not realizing how dire the, the circumstances right. are. So I make a list and you know, he, I call him and he's like, I can't believe that you left this house like this. I've got these kids and they came into this house, you know, with yeah, it's everybody else's fault with this, you know, this mess that you've left me. And I just had no idea you were going to leave me. And, and you know what, what had brought this whole thing on was that it was the week after Christmas and he had maybe the week after Christmas. I don't remember. It's all such a blur, but he wanted me to watch. He had his kids over Christmas break and he wanted me around to watch the kids so that he could work and go party with his friends. How convenient. You know, and, and every time he had his kids on the weekends, he would go rope or he would go golf or he would go do something. He was never around for his kids anyway. You know, he would leave the kids with me, which was fine. But it was, you know, at this point, it's inconvenient for him because I'm not going to play this game anymore. Yeah. So I don't see him. I go in and see a lawyer as soon as I possibly can to get the divorce proceedings underway. And, and of course, in the meantime, my parents are like, well, let's try counseling again. And I'm like, oh my God, I've seen, here I am. I've seen two counselors already. The one told me to pray for him, which was clearly not going to work because <laughs> he doesn't think there's anything wrong with him. Hey, I'm um, all for it. But uh, in some circumstances, it's a little bit more than that. You know, uh, the other is, I will never forget the moment I sat in her office and she said, he's just like my ex-husband. He has a narcissistic personality disorder. He has no idea who he is. You know what it's like to have the world by the tail and own it. And until you leave him, you're never going to know what that's like again. It's a tough love, but it's probably you know? correct. And yeah. it, it was. And I was, yeah. I was very grateful for her for telling me that. But at the same time, I thought, oh, I don't know what to do. Yeah. You know, how do I get out? How do I extricate yeah, myself yeah, yeah. from this disaster? Because you're not in that offensive state of mind, right? You don't have the confidence or the luster that you used to have, right? You're, you're dwindled right. down to, to a feeble you know, insecure personality. So it's hard to see the world in that light. Although it's true, right? It's, yeah. you're in control, leave. But it's not that easy, right? There's steps right. You gotta, that, that you got to take to get there. Right. So file for divorce and process service chased him down for, I think, six months. And then it took another year and a half to get a divorce. And really all we had was a really expensive stud horse in training with Bobby Lewis. And he didn't want to give it up. And I don't know, we had a few horses to fight about, but there was very little community property other than the $50,000 of debt that he left me in that was in my name. Oh, geez. And of course, Texas is a non-alimony state and they can, they can give you quote unquote spousal support. But, you know, I think he paid me $1,500 of the $6,000 that he, we finally got him to agree to and left me with the rest of it. But I was done. Finally out. I was going to say you're free though. Over it. Free. Got a job working for a guy at my dad's church as um, a registered assistant. So um, he had an investment firm. And that was, I got, to, I moved home, moved in with my folks, kept my horses, started giving some riding lessons. I don't think I dated very much, really. I was just kind of <laughs> men, you know, whatever. Being you, yeah. 
um, I wanted some time to kind of just do my thing. About probably, I don't know, it was probably four years later, I met a guy that was just the, and he was the anti-Jeff. Very nice, served in the military, owned his own business, owned his own home. By all outward appearances, was exceptionally responsible and successful, an engineer by degree. Um, everything checked out. <laughs> yeah. You know, on this one. Yeah. Um, and so uh, we got married in, I think, 2006. And of course, by this time, I'm, I think it's great because he's not knocking me around and he's not being mean to me. And, you know, I feel like I'm free to um, ride my horses and work and, kind of be me, but he's a functioning alcoholic. And I didn't know what that was because no one in my family drinks. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, long story short, it was Zach who told me that he was treating me poorly, but I didn't know what good treatment was. <laughs> I was going to say, you don't really have a benchmark to compare that to. I mean, the benchmark that I had was my dad yeah. treating, you know, my dad yeah, and my yeah, yeah. mom. But even, you know, I mean, we all, none of us are without our faults. And, That's you know, God's honest truth. You know, none of us are without our faults. And my dad, God bless him, he's one of the godliest men I know, but he has a terrible temper. And he yelled at my mom and he yelled at us all the time we were growing up. And so that was normal for me mm -hmm. to get yelled at, you know. And, and I don't know that he, he never did it out of malice. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it was never, just hollering, it was frustration. Yeah. It wasn't ever, he never did it out of meanness. Mm -hmm. And I think therein lies the difference. But when that is what you are accustomed to, you know, when dad is exasperated and dad is yelling at you, you think that's acceptable. Yeah, it becomes your because, normal. Because that was normal. So, you know, I was used to to that coming out in a, in temper, you know, with, with, with regard to that. And anyway, I met, I met Zach through a horse group in like 2005 in a Yahoo horse group back way back when Yahoo had their Yahoo messenger was big and, and, um, they had the message boards and I was working at the investment firm and I was riding and training horses. Um, I was doing both. So I was really busy. Um, I would work from like seven to two or three, and then I would go ride until I couldn't ride anymore. And I would squeeze a bunch of riding lessons in there. And then 2007, I believe I quit my job. Maybe it was 2006. I quit my job at the investment firm and went to riding horses full time because I was finally had built my business up to where I had to make a choice. Yeah. And um, so I went to riding horses full time and that did not sit well with my second husband. He didn't like it that I didn't want to go duck hunting or go to the lake on the weekends that I wanted to go barrel race or, you know, and I got client horses that need to go to the barrel races. They're paying me to take their horses to the barrel races. They're paying me to do these things with their horses and horses are a seven day a week commitment, especially when you have them stalled and you have to feed them and they're not just turned out on, you know, a section of land like we have ours here. Um, do you think it was the, do you think it was the financial disparity or the change in income? That that kind of set your second husband off, or was it the just the time consumed? It by, was the time by being consumed. It was the time consumed by it, and and quite frankly, you know, he didn't he didn't want to have a marriage anyway. He wanted a business arrangement. So 
Keep in mind, he's running a household before we get married. As soon as we get married, I'm responsible for paying the utilities and for all these household bills Mm -hmm. that he had previously been taking care of. We had separate checking accounts. There was no, it was his and mine. There was no, we're a team in this, you know. But at the same time, he treated me better than the first husband and he owned his home and he was responsible and I didn't have to wonder where my next meal is coming from or whether the lights were going to get turned off because I had the income to at least make sure that they were going to stay on, even though, you know, that's maybe not how some people would think a marriage should work. That was what was working for us. If it was, I don't even know that it was working for us, but, but I was in it and I was there and I was happier that I was getting to, to hang out with my horses and, and do the things that I I wanted to do with my horses. Um, I didn't get to do all the things I wanted to do with my horses because I'm paying household bills and that took away from maybe being able to do some other things. And when I actually got to meet Zach in person, which is kind of a funny story because I set him up with my best friend at the time. So he came to Texas to meet her. Oh, no kidding. Spent a week at the barn with me. We had them over to our house for supper. Mm-hmm. And John was just a dick, for lack of a better way to put it. He was just a dick to him. And and just kind of an obnoxious dude the whole entire evening. And, of course, Jill, my friend, was used to that because she knew him. And we'd been friends for a long time. But she didn't like him. He was too uncomplicated for her, I think. Too simple. And... He left on, I think it was a Thursday. We had them over for supper. He left on that Friday. And then I think that next Monday, he called me after he got home and got settled in. Well, he got home and ended up with, in a horse wreck and got his head stepped on. So he had he had that happen. Had to go to the hospital and get stitches and all sorts of things. But anyway, he called me and he's like, you know, if you ever want a job in South Dakota, I will give you one on the ranch because I think you're... Well, and I'd already rode a horse for him. He'd already sent one down for me to ride, mm-hmm. I think. Well, not not then, I guess next year. But anyway, um, he said, if you ever want to, if you ever want a job in South Dakota, I will, I will give you one. You can come move to the ranch and ride all the horses that you want. And by the way, uh, your husband treats you like shit. <laughs> and that was such a foreign concept to me. I thought, here's this guy that is the epitome of a gentleman. So kind, so thoughtful in everything that he did. And I mean, I knew that because we had been visiting about horses online through the message board for years and his presentation of himself and his awareness of how he presents himself to everyone in the world around him is incredible. Mm -hmm. You know, it's Mm -hmm. just when you meet him and you are around him, you feel like there's nothing that you can't do because he exudes so much confidence. Yeah, And you feel like you've known him for forever because he's that comfortable to be around. And that's, you know? I was going to say, that's a testament that J.D. Steffen shared a couple of weeks back, right? Is it Zach yeah. just instilled this confidence and had this presence that, that's just kind of undescribable? Yes, and, and we'll, get, we'll carry on with that confidence if you have the time oh, um, absolutely. later because it's been a long road for me to realize that and get there. You know, he's, here's this guy that it's like... You want to ride horses full time, and uh, I'll make it work. And about a week later was, uh, I think, our first year wedding anniversary. And John's like, "Yeah, I'm going to take. We'll go out to this restaurant, but you're paying for half of supper." 
Heck of a date right there. I was like, all right, we're done. And that was kind of the moment, I think, that broke the camel's back. You know, I'd already been in a shitty situation, and I didn't want to be in another one Mm -hmm. for the rest of my life. And God loved my mom and dad, but my mom's like, I moved in with him. And she's like, are you going to get married? And I think had I not felt that pressure to please my parents. Probably wouldn't have happened. I probably wouldn't have married him. Yeah. Yeah. I would have, I would have sorted it out on my own. But it's a tough spot, right? Because things went so bad the first go around that you want to kind of make it up and, and do right. things right oh, the second sure. one, right? So maybe you do put some undue pressure on it to to right. seek that success, although the, although it's not right, you know? Yeah, I mean, ab- absolutely. Um, and so anyway, so that was 2007. In 2008, I moved to South Dakota. So that is how I got all the way to South Dakota. <laughs> That was a long story. I'm sorry. Done. Game, your, set, match. Your listeners no. have probably like left us by now. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a, it's quite the journey. It truly is, right? And and oftentimes we end up in places we had no intention of being. And there's one heck of a story in getting there, right? And I think this goes goes back to the whole you can't judge a book by its cover, right? People cannot pass judgment. They don't know what's going on behind closed doors, right? Not only in your right. life, but in anybody's life. And and I think that's the draw that a lot of listeners have. Is it? Like you said, we've all been broken and we've all been damaged and we've all repaired ourselves to some regard. And, and this is your story and these are your chapters. And that's, you know, that I love that you said that because like, I think the world is so polarized right now and everybody's just, they judge everyone yeah. for everything without it's knowing easy. the story. And it just, it makes me sad on a daily basis. I don't, I don't want to, sad's not the right word. It, it's, that isn't the right word. It's, it's not. In my opinion, it's disheartening. That's what it is. That It's disheartening yeah. that you've got so many people judging someone for their choice of politician or their choice of, of thought process or, you know, yeah. you don't know what led them to make that choice. Yes. So who are you to judge them for making that choice? Because yes. you don't know that you wouldn't have made the same one had you been in their shoes. Exposed to the same elements. Yeah. And, and my, my biggest thing is like, yeah, I get it. We're not all going to get along, but I think social media and the internet has made it easy to to attack people, right? Because yeah, it's easy to throw punches when you know ain't no punches are going to get thrown back, right? You know, but you stand toe to toe with somebody, and we'll see how much of the stuff is being said. And, and I'm not advocating for fighting or anything like that, but I'm just right. talking about the primal instincts of communication, right? And, and right. socially, how humans operate, and uh, well, I don't and- know. You know, socially, the, the uh, human that comes to a horse that way, that horse has every right to defend himself against that obnoxiousness. Yeah. So if you get yourself kicked, bit, run over, stomped on, bucked off, you earned it. And it goes back to the honesty thing, right? Right. Through, through the internet and all these social media platforms, people can live these lavish lives that look incredible via social media. Yeah, they're right? just curated for that. It's a show. Whereas with a horse, there, there's no show about it. You get what you get. It's mm-hmm. the honesty and the purity in it. Well, and, you know, I mean, if I'm being honest, I, I curate my feed to some degree because there are some things that wouldn't be understood by the public if we offered them. But like, here's, here's you know, the difference. We it's, can't put a photo of, of taking a downed cow up. You know, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that could be totally misconstrued by the wrong people for the wrong reasons. Maybe that goes into my Instagram story. Maybe it doesn't make it at all. Maybe I just talk about it. But the, but the reality of it is, is that you're, I mean, there's a branding element to your social media, right? Because these are business uh-huh. adventures, right? Right. And the fact of the matter is, it's 
it ain't no different than a parent protecting their child growing up, right? There's some some realities in this world that, that people just don't need to see, right? Right. Or oh, for sure. That people don't need to be involved in. I don't think that you're, in my opinion, in looking over all your social media, I don't think you're making ranching this grandiose thing. You know, I think it's an honest depiction of it. I think it's showing the beauty of it, but I don't think it's passing unfair judgment on, on the industry. Not one single Perfect. bit. Not one single bit. I think you're memorializing the great parts of it. And it all does come with tough work and in the stress of paying bills and covering bills and sometimes not knowing where your next check's coming from. That's <laughs> that's challenges everybody faces, right? Not only right, in ranching, yeah. not only in horsemanship, but but in, in many, many professions across the board. Yeah, for sure. Different stories for different days. Mm-hmm. So let's get into a few of your endeavors because you've very much diversified your Artistic abilities, content creation. How do you want to explain it? Um, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know. I was always very good at English. That was probably the highest score that I got when I took the ACT when I was in high school and I got an almost perfect score on it. Um, I was always a good, I don't say, I want to, I don't want to say I was always a good writer, but I had a bunch of teachers that I didn't like at the time, yeah. but pushed me to, to, to write better and to be better and the two just kind of fell in the photography and the writing and the writing not the writing people yeah. always think I get that the, <laughs> writing with so a the t or a d yeah the writing um and the photography kind of go hand in hand and I was sort of looking for a way to make some money with the photography because let's face it when you're a 20 mile round trip from your mailbox shooting portraits is probably not a way you're going to make money unless you want to travel yeah being a portrait photographer was probably not at the top of my list mm-hmm. of things that I wanted to do with mm-hmm. my photography. I have been riding horses for a long time. I've had the opportunity to ride with Buck Branneman for almost 10 years. So I I kind of have been able to just sort of meld the two, the photography and my ability to describe maybe different maneuvers that you might do with your horse or or ranch life in in general so those two those two things kind of went hand in hand but you know it took me a long time to get there when I got to the ranch um in 2008 um Zach's sister had just been killed in a four-wheeler accident she died like in June 26th or 27th left behind um four kids and a grandchild and another one on the way or he had just been born I can't remember I think he wasn't born yet so he handed me a camera and said, here, take some pictures. And this is an old camera, like a Canon 10D, like the first DSLR that Canon ever came out with. Didn't have an owner's manual. The internet wasn't fast enough for me to download one. So I just sort of took pictures and sort of, figured out, yeah. sort of figured out how it worked. I had a vision and and kind of, you know, I took a lot of photos to get something good. And as I read more about it, I kind of started to learn and, and kind of shape, you know, what I wanted to have. And then it took, we, I was late for getting a smartphone because we didn't have very good cell service here, um, at the time. So I think my first Instagram post came in like 2011 or something like that. And I'm very fortunate that I'm in a place where the horsemanship and life are the exact same, like how you treat your horse and, and how you treat people, are the same. So there's a family that has just lost their sister and, you know, they're still joking and laughing and making the best of that situation because, well, you know, when you're riding a colt 
That's your job. Your job is to make the best of what that colt gives you. Yeah, be in that moment. He wants to hang out down at the fence with his friends. Well, then that's where you're going to ride him. You're going to make that maybe difficult for him, but that's, you're going to say, Hey, you want to go over there? Cool. Let's do that. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. Um, But in order to really make that happen, you have to relinquish a lot of control. And for me, that's been the hardest part of my journey is letting go because I think that having been controlled and having had that mindset of, can I say this out loud? Can I think this? Can I make this decision? I was, I, I tried to be very much in control and God bless my mom. She's a little bit of a control freak. Her mother was an even bigger control freak than she was. And so I've had to learn to let that go and, and learn to just go with things a lot more. And that, I think my photography shows that too. I've learned to just kind of like be in that moment and, and I'm learning it more even more now. This is the, this last summer was the first summer that I actually enjoyed really riding colts that I can remember. And I, I mean, I rode colts when I rode for Mark back in college and, but I was in my twenties and fearless and young yeah, 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 yeah. and you bounce you back a You to be a little a smarter about it now. You get a little, you, you get bucked off when you're 20 and you're like, bring it, yep. let's do this again. You know, yeah. no, <laughs> um, you are absolutely correct. You know, and it's not that I want my horses to buck because I don't, the goal is to have them never feel the need to defend themselves in that way. But, but it's just, different. And I think I was so broken when I got here that I didn't know how to relinquish the control. And I, I didn't want to be able, I didn't want to ride a colt that I couldn't already direct. If I couldn't, if I couldn't make a decision for where his feet needed to be right then there was, I was in a panic attack, Mm -hmm. you know, and, Mm -hmm. and here's a girl that runs barrels and likes to go fast. And I'm scared a colt's going to run off with me. How, irrational is that yeah yeah I, and i think it, just in this week for myself i was in reflection i was reading in a book about uh, liberty horsemanship and some training philosophies and that and and looking back i think that's been one of my biggest issues being such a type a personality and having hmm. to have control um, and having to have people of competency in my world when i'm faced with an animal that maybe doesn't have that competency me holding on to so much control, I think it's been a hindrance, right? I don't relinquish that control. I don't allow that horse to make its own decisions. I don't allow that horse to have the opportunity to develop confidence in themselves because I'm so insecure in the control portion of it it, 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 it suppresses their ability to do so, if that makes sense. Right. No, it it's, yeah, I just got chills because that's exactly kind of where I've been. And, you know, we run an internship program here on the ranch where every year we have college kids come in and they they pay us to be interns here because we feed them and house them and I have struggled for a very long time with helping them and realizing that we're getting people here that that don't do things the same way and don't understand and you know because I didn't want to relinquish the control and because I like things just so so and not just in my house but in my world um, I haven't enjoyed that experience as much as I could have because I couldn't let all of that go. Yes. Um, and and so there was just a great deal of anxiety 
with that. And, and in going back to the confidence that Zach instills, I was so broken that I couldn't get the confidence from him that I needed. Pretty powerful statement. If you really sit down and think about it and the human dynamic of it. Right. I, I, you know, he would say, yes, you can do this. I know you can. I believe in you, but I can't believe it for you. Yeah. You have to believe it for yourself. And so that's awesome. For, so for a lot of years, my social media content, I could talk it, but I couldn't walk it. Mm-hmm. So there was a disconnect in that. And, and the people that knew me could see the disconnect that I wasn't consistent in, in what I would say and then what I would do. I would say, you know, don't be bothered. But then I'm like, oh, my God, where did this come from? Why is this in my house? Who put this here? Yeah. You know, you know what it's I mean? funny, a, a mentor of mine or, or an individual that I follow as far as kind of life coaching stuff, uh, a guy by the name of Inky Johnson always talks about that. Does your work ethic match your desired goal? Right? And it kind of relates to that. Do you, are you living what you're trying to be? Are you living where you're trying to go? Right? Or is it just right. kind of empty? And mm-hmm. it's, I think it's, it's hard for people when you really sit back and take a look at it and, and ask yourself that tough question. You know, we all want to be world champions. We all want to be the best. We all want to provide for everybody. But are you putting in the time that it takes to get there? Are you making well, the sacrifices and, and, and things of that sort, you know? Are you are you accepting the fact that the horse doesn't give two shits whether you're a world champion? <laughs> it don't matter at all. Not you know, one single bit. Yeah. I want to win a barrel race as much as the next girl. But you know what I want more than that? I want my horse to like me. Yes. And it's so funny because... My good barrel horse, A.V., he's kind of Instagram famous. And, and most of my followers know my horses. They know which ones are which. And I get questions every day about how this is going or how this horse is doing or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. And we, I've built a relationship with my followers based on these horses and their personalities and and um, whatnot. And I get the comment all the time, A.V. likes you. I go out and he comes up to me and he's like, what's up, lady? You know, yeah. he likes me. And I would rather have him like me than win a rodeo. Don't get me wrong. I want to win a rodeo as much as the next girl. But the fact that at the end of the day, he still wants to hang out with me, that is the most important thing. That's been my biggest drive in horsemanship for me and my journey. I mean, I... Uh, but it took me a long time to get there. It's tough. It's tough. It took me two and a half years when I got back into horses. So, I mean, long story short, did horses when I was younger played a little baseball, had to get a real job because I was sick of traveling and not making any money. Mm-hmm. That job ate me up a little bit and I got back into horses and, and wanted nothing more than to team rope and and started to go down that path, got myself a horse that was supposed to be good for me and get me to the next level and and sitting down and riding and fighting with that horse all the time and that horse being wound tighter than a drum. I just had that moment like, God, something's got to be better than this. This can't be how it's supposed to be. Right. And uh, I elected to put down a rope because I've just pursued horsemanship, right? I need to understand how to develop confidence in a horse. I need to understand every single stitch of a horse and how they communicate. Right. And how I can effectively communicate back. I think you can build some incredible horses, but this old spur the guts out of mentality is, in my opinion, not the way to do it. I think we're far too educated and far too, how do I say this? I think there's access to too much good information to, yes. to have some of these primal approaches that, don't well, get me wrong, I've been successful for many, many years, but, but a, a lot of horses are blown up 
in the process? I think it depends too also on, and that's my specialty. I love riding blown up horses. I love it. It's like if I could have a barn full of them, of blown up barrel horses to ride and people would pay me to do it, I'd fix every single one of them. They have so much to give. So much to give. And I don't know if I enjoy the fixing on it because I see that as a parallel to my life. Correct. Or not, but there's so much to give and so much that could be prevented in that. And, And when I got my big yellow horse, A.V., He'd been running barrels, but you only had two speeds, basically. You had to walk, like a blow your doors off walk. <laughs> and, and here we had, go. And we're going 90 miles an hour. And yeah. it was a constant tug of war to keep him at the speed that I wanted to ride, you mm-hmm. know. And, mm-hmm. and it. so when I first got him, I um, I got him like a week before there was a big barrel race. And I took him over to my friend's house to her outdoor arena and try to make a couple runs on him. And the first run that I made on him, he fell down going around the third barrel. And I'd never had a horse do this before. I'm looking up at his belly from the ground. A little uncomfortable. So that happens. And then we go to the barrel race and I ride um, mega run Friday, mega run Saturday. And then my Sunday run, at the end of the run, I go to stop him. I stop straight. He stops to the left. I fall off. He steps on my head on his way by me. And Good grief. Interestingly enough, that was basically two years to the day that I'd had a similar wreck on another horse in that oh, same no. arena. So I get home and Zach says, babe, I love you, but I'm not going to take care of you if you become a cripple because of this horse. And I'm like, oh, okay. He's like, you got to start over. You guys are not together. He's not a team. He's making a run. You're behind him. He's doing it without you. Yeah. And if you want to if you want to be as good as you both can be, the only way you're going to get there is to go back to step Starting 1. Over. And I I should have told you this the first day we rode him when you got him home, but I knew you wanted a barrel horse because I'd had to retire my other one and mm-hmm. I had another one that was crippled, another one that was having babies and I didn't have anything to run and he knew that that was what I wanted. And so he's like you need 2 years minimum ranch on him. You guys get together, you become a team and you're going to to be able to get done what you want to get done on this horse if you'll do that. So I kind of started him over, went back to the round pin, you know, got to where it took me about three years to get to where I could swing a rope on him without him just panicking for whatever reason. Anyway, about a year and a half after I've started this process over, I I go test the waters, take him to a local jackpot. I got my hand up his neck. We're going around the first barrel and he falls down again. Goodness. So, so um sprained my MCL, crashed into the first barrel, you know, bruised my whole side. Yeah, it's gonna ding you up a little bit. You know, we're kinda like, all right, this is not working really good. And so in the process of having of having this horse and it, quite honestly, it brought on a level of anxiety that I had never experienced before to the point of panic attacks before I would ride him, before I, I could make a run on him. Was the anxiety specific to that horse or was it riding horses in general? Um, specific to, well, specific to that horse and specific to riding colts. Okay. Anytime I felt like I might be out of control, which to me, I'm not in control of the ground, right? Yes. So I wasn't going to ride him to the best of my ability because I needed to know that I 
had some semblance of control over him. So I'm riding a pro caliber horse that's running a second off because I'm too terrified. Not letting it go. Yeah. I'm too terrified to make the run that I can really make on that horse, mm-hmm. you know, and, and along the way, of course, I've started a couple other cults um, that, and that's brought on some anxiety too, because again, you know, you take them outside, what are they going to do? They live outside. Get over yourself, Jennifer, you know? <laughs> good point. Good point you make. They live, they live outside. These horses know where to put their feet. Eventually, they're going to get tired of running, you know, if they decide to run off with me or whatever. I mean, I had all these, it was to the point where I had all these irrational fears that I was talking to myself about these fears. And that was all I could visualize was what could go wrong. I was never asking myself what could go right. Yeah. And looking back on it, I think I was so, I think that it was literally leftover fear from my first marriage because nothing went right because I didn't do anything right because I wasn't good enough. And Mm -hmm. you've, you know, I'd heard that for so long. It's crazy that, uh, that that experience would come to life in such a different scenario so many years down the road. Right. And, and it wasn't just, I mean, it wasn't just with that horse. I mean, I had my, my now really good ranch horse. That's my bridal horse. He bucked me off when I took him to Texas in 2000 for the winter of 2010. You know, I I didn't want to ride a colt by myself. I just, I could not, I could not let go. And so probably in, Oh, I don't know, 2013 or 2014, I started seeing the therapist again because I just could not get my shit together. I know all these things, but I'm not able to do them. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I know these things with my horses and I know these things in my life and, you know. You can't get out of your own way. I've learned from Zach that you have to be aware of your presentation towards other people and towards other horses. And, you know, I had a horse, he gave me a horse for my um, 30th birthday that, that was my barrel horse for a lot of years. And, and that horse probably taught me more than any other horse about being aware because he had been raised here and then sold and abused when he was sold. And then we got, we got him back. And so I had such an agenda with that horse that it would take me two or three hours to catch him because he wanted nothing to do with my agenda. But I didn't realize it at the time. Zach could yeah. walk in that pen and catch him, and he'd put his head down, and Gump would be like, hey, I like you. I'd walk in that pen, and he'd be like, not a chance today. <laughs> not today. You know? and Just a different presence. My presence was yeah. one of agenda. It was one of Warp. selfish motives. I didn't want be a partner with that horse. I wanted to run barrels on that horse. And by God, that's what we were going to do. Yeah. You know, it, I didn't ever consider his feelings in the matter, but none of my partners had ever considered my feelings either. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and I didn't grow up in a family that awareness is a big deal. And it's not for a lot of people. They don't, they're not aware of how they're, I mean, clearly we're not aware of our presence as humans on other people, or we wouldn't have all this nasty vitriol and obnoxiousness that we're experiencing in our world today. That's an incredible point. Absolutely correct. And so it took me probably a year spending time with that horse. I would, I couldn't catch him, but I would go out every morning and all winter long, I kept him in a little, in our little calving trap. I'd take a bucket of oats and I would lead him into the barn, like lure him into the barn with the oats. I would sit on a 
on a tipped over lick tub, pet my tomcat and watch my horse eat. And I would work on catching him in a 60 by 80 barn Mm -hmm. where I had half a chance at being successful. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't that he wasn't going to let me. It was that I was in my own way. And of course, by the time I finally got all my shit together, I can go, I could go catch him in a 900 acre pasture. I ended up having to put him down last year, but, um, well, I'm sorry to hear that. That's tough. He was one of my, he was one of my, well, he was, he was 23 or something. So it was, it was okay. But, but that's, you know, he was one of my best teachers with the awareness and, and my presentation toward the horses. And interestingly enough with him, I never had any anxiety running him. I never, I never doubted that he would, I, you know, I never doubted he would fall. I mean, he slipped several times, but I had so much trust in him that we'd built, you know, I knew when I got on him that I was going to have a good ride, that he was going to take care of me. And this was a horse that had been a runaway when we got him back. It took about three years to get him to where he could walk because he thought every time you threw a leg over him, he needed to go as fast as he could go. But I think you hit the nail on the head when you said it's trust that you built, right? You built. Right. Starting back at square one and developing it. It's not, it's, it's something earned. It's not something given. And, you know, I was so unaware of myself and my actions when I got here that I destroyed the trust of a lot of people at this, at this place and in this family, because I didn't think it mattered. You know what I mean? Yeah. I didn't think that my presentation or my behavior, um, but it had never been shown to you in your life that it does. Well, you know, I don't know that that's necessarily true, but I guess in, in relationships with people outside my family, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And, Mm -hmm. and, and in that, in, in my situation with my family, you know, unless you just do something ridiculous, you're, you know, that's, it's cause, cause it's family. Yes. Yes. yes, I guess, but I hadn't, and I hadn't ever had to realize that it was important and that it mattered. And, you know, so I started going back to the therapist and it, it helped to some degree. And I went on and off for several, several years, but it wasn't until last year, probably in June when she's finally like, we got to get you on medication. Mm-hmm. And I hate to say that medication changed my life, but medication changed my life. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> think it, I think through. it gives you the opportunity, right? Just to, to maybe get to that next step, get to that next level. We've got to find something that can bridge the gap for you because yeah, exactly that's a good way of because it. you know exactly what to do to not be depressed. You know exactly what to do to not have anxiety attacks. You know exactly what to do to help yourself in these situations. You understand awareness. You understand empathy. You know you understand all these fundamentals of riding these colts, but you can't let go. Yeah, and we got to find something that's going to allow you that. I mean, I remember. Clearly, in April at the BBR finals, I had a panic attack, went cried in my trailer before I ran because I was freaking just wound so tight. Yeah, I was so wound up so tight. And AV, bless his heart, made a pretty nice run. Hit, you know, we hit the 2D, we didn't want any money, but I did not ride him to his full potential and I did not ride to my full potential. And I was miserable and it just, you know, at this point I'm doing four square breathing and I'm doing the yoga stretching and the yoga poses before my runs to ground me. Mm -hmm. And that did Mm -hmm. start to help, but I, I just, you know, at this point with the medication, like 
I, I'm just letting everything go and I'm enjoying riding my Colts and I feel like I'm finally to a place where I'm able to practice what I preach and will I get off the medication at some point? Yeah, probably. But if that's what's helping me curb this anxiety, then I'm all for it. And I finally made some runs on my horse that were worthy of both of us at the end of the season. Yeah. So I'm super looking forward to it's gotta be a great what, feeling. We, what we can do next year. Now that I feel like I have this under control, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But that's, that's the greatest thing in all of this journey with horses is that, I mean, I feel very blessed in the experiences that I have. Do I claim to be an expert? No, that will never, ever, ever happen. I just think there's too much to learn in this game to be an expert. However, when we as individuals within the community, right, have these awesome experiences, whether it's to learn from a great mentor or life coaching skills or performance anxiety skills, right, and, and focusing uh-huh. and grounding yourself, uh-huh. and and we we learn these little quote-unquote trade secrets, for lack of a better term, uh-huh. I mean, that's the greatest joy in it, right? Share it with people. Help, right. Help the person next to you because you don't you don't know that two trailers down and girls having the exact same reaction you are, right? Well, and, you know, I have this because I've been in and out of therapy for on and off, you know, and I've had back to my first husband, our marriage counselor that we went to said he's got narcissistic personality and he's a borderline sociopath and he's not going to heal you know, if you want to have any semblance of a normal life, you're going to have to get a divorce. Yeah. But there's such a stigma in needing medication and there's such a stigma with going to the therapist. I mean, this is the first time that I've actually said this publicly. There's like five people that knew in the whole family and in my friendship circle that knew I'd been seeing a therapist for the past however how many years. Wow. You know, and I think um, only about four people know I'm taking medication at this point. Wow. Like I said, I'm going to be an open book for you because I don't feel like, I feel like if it's helped me, it's going to help someone else. And that's the biggest draw in all of this, right? Is can we, can we help the person standing next to us? Right. And if, and if me telling someone I'm taking medication, if that helps them take that plunge and it makes them better able to be the best person they can be on this planet, by all means, go do it. Absolutely. 100%, right? You can't. And I think this is probably my, probably my biggest takeaway from having grown up in a nice Christian household and, and having grown up in the Bible belt. I think my biggest takeaway from all of this is that we have, we and God and, or the creator, whoever, even if you don't believe in that, our job in this lifetime is to give freely of the gifts that we have been given. And if we are so preoccupied with trying to control everything or everyone around us, or we're so beat down by the people that are in our lives that are holding us back, we can't be whole and we can't be the best person that we can be. And we can't give freely of the gifts that we've been blessed with. And until we let go of of the things that are holding us back and until we make that leap and get that divorce and the people that want to judge us, let the people that want to judge us for it, let them out of our lives or let that their judgment yeah. roll off our backs. We can't be the best that we can be for the world. And frankly, I probably wouldn't be here if I had stayed in that marriage because I was suicidal. And the only thing that kept me from killing myself was knowing that no one would feed my horses if I died. 
Man. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. You know, and and it I finally came to the realization, you know, look, I like horses. I'm talented at it. I can do this. And if I can't get my shit together to be the best for the horse, then I'm not I'm not being the best that I can be. Yeah. And, you know, I think my photography is one of the ways that I can that I can be better for the horse. And I think I've built a good platform for, you know, being able to teach people um, some things. And am I where I want to be? No. Am I going to get there? I hope so. And the journey is going to be fun, you know, but that's what it's all about. It's about the journey, not necessarily the destination. It's it took me a very long time to get to the come to that realization and you know the horses are a great teacher in that too because they don't put up with bullshit if there's a horse in that herd that's obnoxious guess where he goes he's by himself he comes to water first yeah. you know he graces by himself because they don't tolerate it yeah. if he can't get yeah. along and be part of what they want to do and part of their survival he doesn't live there but humans are so i don't want to say we're dumb but but we allow ourselves to be put in situations and we surround ourselves with people that do not have our best interests in mind. And we don't all do that, but a lot of us do. And we put ourselves in situations where people can break us down and we, we let people in our lives that are like that. And when I got rid of all those people, man, it got better. It's incredible. I think sometimes our, our ability to rationalize Yes. Can kind of fog our view a little bit of what our heart's telling us, right? The horse doesn't rationalize. No, it survives. It survives, you know, and, and he doesn't hold a grudge. People, people want to anthropomorphize their horses and say, oh, he's mad. He's this, he's that. No, he's not. He's uncertain. He's unsure. You know, he doesn't know why you think, why you want to put this tarp on him. And yeah, he's, he's, he's uncertain, but he's not necessarily scared of it. Yes. Those are human emotions and human thoughts. And when we stop anthropomorphizing our horses and treat them like a horse, we can actually see the relationship and, and what they have to teach us better. I think if we view it from that perspective. As I close every show, right, I give people the opportunity to sell themselves, which we'll get into for you here in a bit. But I also I also give people the opportunity to provide some final words or some closing. But the last five, seven minutes of this this show has just been absolutely incredible. I'm just sitting sitting back in awe. Uh you've hit the nail on the head ten times over. It's been an extremely compelling few minutes and getting down to the real nitty gritty and why this why this show exists. I mean We've all struggled. We've all been broken. This whole judgment thing. I had a conversation with a buddy of mine last night. And nobody's in a position to judge because we don't know the shoes that any other individuals who walked in. We don't know the lens in which they view the world. Right. Uh, I think if we find a little bit more empathy or compassion in, in our relationships, if we as human beings find a little bit better way to empower and encourage, I mean, the momentum grows exponentially, you know, and... And and it, I struggled in the last five to six years, excuse me, about five or six years ago is when I had the the turning point that you talked about in, in, in sharing God's blessings. You know, I struggled and had an image of what I wanted to be and what I thought success was, and I was broken by it. And it wasn't until I kind of just kicked back and let God take the reins per se, 
um, I guess no pun intended in that regard, um, <laughs> that all these blessings just started coming tenfold. I, I'll tell you what, never once when I got truly got into horsemanship and really started digging into faith, never once did I dream about being a horseman, never once did I dream about being a podcast host, never once did I dream about public speaking and teaching and helping people, never, never. But God placed it in my heart, God put it in front of me, and He had given me the tools to make an impact, and and that's exactly what this show is all about, and the testimony that you provided is 100% through and through the life of Let Freedom Reign podcast. Awesome. It's been an absolutely incredible journey. Now, I'll tell you this. We could probably go on and make this a five-hour episode. I'm fairly confident in that statement with the ground that we have to cover. I mean, it's true. It's true. I mean, we've scratched literally the surface of, of Jen Zeller, and there's so many more facets and aspects to your life. And I don't mean to overreach my bounds, but I think we have second and third episodes that we need to cover at some point, hopefully in the 2019 season, because... I would like you to touch base very, very briefly. We've kind of talked about the South Dakota cowgirl and and all the content that you capture there, but you guys are involved in quite a bit at the ranch. You have the ranch operation itself, and then you have this project help. If you don't mind, maybe just kind of summarizing what the project and the ranch are all about, what you guys do, and hopefully we can make that the focus of, of future episodes. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the DX Ranch is... Uh, we're starting to hand the reins over to the fourth generation here on this little spot of heaven on the Cheyenne River Sioux Indian Reservation. Um, the ranch backs up to the Missouri River here in South Dakota. We're kind of in between Eagle Butte and Gettysburg, um, sort of in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of nowhere, my sister likes to say. Um, yeah, and- you guys are deep in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, we have um, a commercial cow-calf operation, and we are just now getting kind of started um, with selling some beef. So people can look up um, MyDX Beef, and they can they can find our, our beef operations there. Um, we have, a, I think we're going on 40-something years of breeding American quarter horses. Um, we don't sell the horses to the public generally because we have a nonprofit called Project Help, and Project Help is basically um, the brainchild of Zach and his brother Guthrie. Um, it's a way to help youth on the reservation. Um, we utilize the horses to um, teach them about confidence and about um, control and controlling their emotions because, frankly, you know this and I know this, the only thing that any of us can control in our lives is how we react in any given situation. And I know this now and I can actually live it based on my ability to be aware and we teach awareness, empathy, and presentation kind of, we've touched on those a little bit this morning. Definitely. So we have, we partner with um, another local nonprofit. We have those youth come in a couple days a week through the summer and we ride and um, we actually teach them about native plants that they can eat and go back to some of the native roots and some of the things that the ancest their ancestors used to do with plants and that that sort of thing. We um, host a STEM camp, partner with another nonprofit to do that. Uh, so we stay really, really busy in the summer here. <laughs> it's incredible your guys' reach. It's incredible the impact you guys are making in people's lives. Uh, J.D. Stefan, uh, a guest two weeks ago, right, spoke very, Gosh, very highly so of awesome. you guys. I know um, he made me cry. 
No, he, <laughs> we had many conversations before and after the show and, and it wasn't until after I realized, you know, the whole public speaking challenge, right? And he had mentioned to me that he was trying to grow a little bit in, in developing his horsemanship and developing his brand and ability to teach. And I mean, in that episode, he, he discussed any number of things and challenges, but to see him actually living it, right? And, mm-hmm. and taking those steps and, and challenging himself and getting outside the comfort zone, I think it's absolutely commendable. I was extremely proud of the job that he did and and not only conveying the messages he needed to convey, but living it himself and being that real world example and and showing people in in adjoining, telling people, you know, it's just been I, I've been so fortunate in the amount of guests that I've had and the type of guests that I've had and and heck, last week's guests 7,000 miles away. Never once in a million years did I think anybody would want to listen to this show. So it's all been a blessing. I feel very fortunate to have such a community of like-minded people who are so willing to put themselves out there just to help another human being. And and we keep pushing this far enough. I think we're going to gain quite the momentum and, and start yeah, really changing sure. people's lives. It's for incredible. Sure. It's incredible. So for people that want to follow along with Project Help, we're actually working on um, a college initiative where we're going to take some of these juniors and seniors. We want to take them on some college tours. So we're raising money for that right now, but they can follow us on Instagram at Project H3LP. Don't miss that three. Yeah, you got to have the three three. because (laughs) think about it this way. It's um, horses, humans, honesty. There you go. So that's, that's what our three H's are. Our, so it's project project help with a three. That's project help with a three dot org, and then we're also on Instagram and Facebook. And then the DX Ranch is also on Facebook as Dushno Quarter Horses. We are on Instagram as the DX Ranch. You'll get to see the majority of the work is mine, mostly my photos. I everyone has access to the Instagram account, but I'm the only one that does stuff on a regular basis with it. And then the SD Cowgirl on Instagram or the South Dakota Cowgirl on Facebook. And then we have website, obviously, for the ranch, the dxranch.com and the South Dakota Cowgirl.com as well. I am telling you, for everybody listening right now, take two seconds out of your day, go visit all of those pages, like, follow, subscribe, all of that stuff. The amount of content, the amount of valuable, incredible content that you'll receive in return is absolutely incredible. Uh, I've spent a week reading as much as I can on the ranch and Jen and in the family's operation. And I've barely even turned the page in the, in the large volume of information that they provide. It's been an absolute incredible journey with you, Jen. I thank you very, very much for sitting down and sharing such intimate details of your life. It's an incredibly impactful story that you have. And, and I'm looking forward to quite a few more episodes with you. Awesome. Me too. All right, Jen. Well, you have a good rest of the day and we'll talk to you down the road. Thank you. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to this episode of Let Freedom Reign Podcast. Again, you can find us on social media under Let Freedom Reign Podcast. If you want to support the growth of this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash Let Freedom Reign Podcast. Again, we thank you, and we'll see you on the next one.